Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lights and Sirens podcast with your host, Bernie Robinson. That is me. And let's talk about this. Why are we here? What is this podcast? This is our first episode, and I'm actually very excited to say that. This has been something I've been thinking about for a while to drop on everyone, and here we are. And uh, hopefully you'll join us for the ride. Let's go. The Lights and Sirens podcast. What does that mean? What this is, is we are a podcast that is for the over 2 million first responders that are in America. We all know that is a community. That's, that's not a group of people. And we, and we all work in this field of emergency services, even the essential workers. And sometimes we need a place where we can come and talk, talk about ideas, talk, share ideas, talk about some stories. We love war stories. So we're going to hear a lot of those. You know, I know a lot of guys were at a lot of scenes and they have stories to tell. And this is the place where you can tell your story. We're going across the country. Over the years, I have met and, you know, network of friends and colleagues in this field from coast to coast and overseas, all in emergency services. That's a lot of stories. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of practices, best practices, and, and things like that to share. So I figured let's pull it all together. You know, and this is not just an EMS thing. As, as I talk about myself a little later, you'll see what my background is, is an EMS primarily. But first responders, you know, we're talking law enforcement. We're talking fire, corrections, sanitation, whoever is out there, you know, that was essential. That is essential and, and helps people. That's who we want to be talking to. And that's who we need to uh, get in this room with us. So who is this podcast for? The Lights and Sirens podcast is, it's for first responders, but it's also for their families. You know, when, when you're a first responder, it's not just you. It's also your drink. You're bringing your family along for the ride with you, you know, good and bad. So this is for all of them as well to, to, to have a place to, to share, you know, share their stories. And we're also open to the general public. Um, if you work in this field, if you're a first responder, you have been asked at least probably once a day, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? What's the worst call you've ever been on? What was it like saving somebody? Have you ever delivered a bit? Yes. So you want to hear what it's like. You want to hear those calls. You want to hear how we got through it and what we did. Absolutely. This is for you. Who is Bernie Robinson? Who am I? I'm the host of the Lights and Sirens podcast. I am a paramedic, a New York City paramedic. I started my EMS career at the age of 19. Um, my first, that first summer with Bed-Stuy Volleys, I did a summer of 89 hanging out down there. Uh, became an EMT, worked at a private company called Metropolitan Ambulance, which eventually became TransCare, which eventually went out of business. It's a whole story, but I was one of the original workers for Mr. Steve Zakheim. That name is very familiar in, in the New York City region, New York region. Then I went to New York City Emergency Medical Services. I went into the academy in 91. I graduated the summer of 91, went to work out of the Coney Island station, and my ambulance used to sit on Stillwell and Surf, the one of the hottest corners in the city, um, in the middle of Coney Island. It was it was a, a wild summer, a lot of stories out of there. But um, 
great people, great people. I transferred to Kings County Station, Station 33 at the time. And I was there for most of my career. I was there totally about eight years. Um, and right before the merger in 1996, I worked downtown Brooklyn out of Cumberland Station. Um, and then I transferred or I left the city after the merger and went to work for what was then North Shore uh, University EMS, which is now Northwell. And I started as an EMT there and kind of worked up. And I've been there now 20 years. So in total, 30-year career, 20 uh, where I am now, eight with the city, and the last two elsewhere. So that's my career in EMS. And it, now I actually work in administration, emergency service administration. I was in EMS at a young age, right? I, was, I started in 19. It was really just something to do um, while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do about college, honestly. I really didn't have any direction. My dad, who also at the time was a lieutenant for the New York City EMS, pretty much forced me to go to EMT school. So I went. I wasn't doing anything. And um, I just started to like what I, you know, like the job. And, and once I got to work for the city, I kind of just fell in love with it. And then, you know, you blink and it's five years. You blink again. And it's almost 10 years. You're there. And it's like, wow. But listen, I had a great time there. And, you know, I just got sucked in and, and I, it became something that I love to do. And, I, you know, and I actually think about it. I grew up in this field. I grew up, you know, working 911. I grew up all my adult life doing this. So it, it definitely is something I'm passionate about. I, you know, I want us to be heard as a community. And I think that, you know, now is our time. We, EMS and emergency services are very in the forefront right now with everything that's going on. And this is a time to, you know, people are listening to us and, and people are understanding what we're going through. And, and, you know, it's time to be heard as a community. I am passionate about this podcast because I'm passionate about EMS. I'm passionate about first responders. I'm passionate about, you know, what concerns us as a group. So, yes, I'm very passionate about this and, and what we do as a community. I'd like to share some of the experiences that I had uh, while working, you know, in my career. So I'll tell this, I'll share this one call that um, I learned something about myself. It, it, okay, when I was younger, this happened about 92. Um, so I'm young, young guy, no kids, don't really care about much. I just want to work, make money, go party, go hang out. Um, and that pretty much was my life, right? So we get this call, respond for a person shot. Uh, we get to the house. And the a lady answers the door. She's bleeding from her neck. She was shot in, in the throat, um, staggering and barely able to walk. We go inside the apartment. It's me. It's us, my, my EMS partner, uh, and the police. We go in the apartment, and there were three children sleeping in the back, um, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. The one-year-old was shot in the head, and he and and he was dead. The three-year-old was shot, and he was killed. The four-year-old was untouched, um, and and the perpetrator had fled the scene. Uh, he and it turned out he was that child's father. So that's the, the child he didn't kill. Um, 
But what I remember about that, something I learned about myself, and I will learn that later, um, everybody was crying, like the, the officers, you know, the other EMS crew that was there. I would say most of the people besides myself, you know, and, and I didn't understand why, you know, well, everybody's crying and it has a tear in their eye. But later, I would, after I had children, I realized that call, a call like that affected me much more. Because at that time, I, like I said, I'm young, I'm single, didn't care about much. And, and that was the kind of the, the gung-ho days where you, you're just buffing jobs and you're running the scenes. And, you know, it was action. And you don't stop to really think, oh, man, this, is, this just shattered so many lives. And, and it affected every, you know, just about every person in that room. Now, fast forward, I did a, a, a cardiac arrest, a pediatric cardiac arrest, with a kid that was, I believe, like five years old and choked on a pit of a, of a fruit. Um, and I'm working. We worked him up. And I'm getting teary-eyed working on this kid. But then I realized I have a five-year-old at home who same age as this child, same physique. And, and it just, that freaked me out. And that kind of took me back to that first call where I didn't understand, well, kind of like, why is everybody melting down? But now, I, it, you know, it hits you different when, it relates to you or, or, or you have that personal connection or you have a child that looks like that child. And, you know, that was one of the things that always stuck with me. And, and, you know, I've, I, that's why I say I grew up on this job because things like, you know, mature wise, maturity, emotionally, it, it's, yeah, it's, that's the kind of job it is. So that was one experience. I do have another call with a more of a positive um, outcome. So we, um, we responded to a OB out call, which is means that there's a baby either very close to being delivered, if not already out. And we get to the house and yes, the lady answers the door. She's holding something and bent over. We can't see what it is. As we go into the apartment, we see, I see there's legs, you know, dangling, from from where she's holding. So I look at my partner and we're like, well, how far pregnant are you? I believe she was five months pregnant. So right there, I'm thinking this is not a viable uh, pregnancy. So let's get something. Let's get her in the house, sit her down, and let's get something to put the fetus in because that's what, you know, what we do and collect the fetus and, and explain to her what's happening. And she says, oh, no, I'm, I'm keeping my baby. You're not take, you know, getting rid of my baby. And then the legs start to move, and, and we're like, oh, man, um, okay. So we call for paramedics to come. They do what they have to do. Everyone does what they have to do. We cut, clamp the cord. Um, the medics came. They took the baby right away. Um, I believe they started to use the BVM on the baby and assist ventilations. We get to the hospital. We take the mother. We get to the hospital. We drop her off. And for some reason, we went back, or I think I went back a day later or a day or two later and ended up bringing another patient upstairs to the floor. And she was there with the baby. And the baby was alive, and, and she was very happy. And she said, eh, you know, she kind of pointed her finger, like, and you wanted me to get rid of my baby or something like that. And, you know, she, but she was very happy that, you know, the, the baby survived. And 
you know, we'll see what happens. But that was a long time ago, and I'm sure that child is a thriving adult right now. But um, that was interesting to just to walk in the house and you see the the whole scene of the the lady standing there and and the legs dangling was a little, you know that was one of those okay. And then my last call, one of the last calls I did before I left Brooklyn was we delivered a healthy baby to a woman who did not know she was pregnant. And that was a shock to her and to the gentleman who is now a father. So that was, that was uh, pretty interesting as well. But on a, on a more serious note, um, today marks a year actually yeah it was today where i began to start to feel symptoms of uh from being exposed to covid-19 and uh in a couple of days from now it'll be a year from when i went to the hospital uh the first of two times and was admitted for a week and easter sunday will be the year to the day i was actually discharged um, from the hospital after my bout with the coronavirus. I can tell you now that was the worst um, experience ever. My wife still talks about it to this day, how, oh, we almost lost you. And she, honestly, she's, she was traumatized by that experience. And, and the more we talk about it, I, I see why. I mean, I was, you know, I could not walk. I could not breathe. I couldn't sit up. I was locked. I quarantined myself in the basement for three weeks, and I just, I, I didn't eat. I didn't drink. Um, I just laid there and, and just was trying to breathe, honestly. And it was, and to to take a deep breath, to be able to take a deep breath today with no pain, is one of the most pleasurable things. I I start every day with that when I get in my car. I just take a deep breath, and I'm like, oh, man, this feels good. Because a year ago, it, it was the most painful thing to do was to take a deep breath, and I could not take a completely full breath. Um, the fever, the body aches, couldn't taste food even if I wanted to eat it. And, you know, this was horrible. And, yeah, it took me down. You know, and then, and then to, have, to, see, to have my children, my sons who are both college age, Watch their father get dragged out in an ambulance back to back, you know, two times in a week, you know, and, and see, and when you're a boy, your dad's like Superman, you know, and and to to to, to have them see you like that was was awful. Um, yeah, and I spent that time in the hospital. I, I thankfully I got better, and I know a lot of people who did not get better, and, and I know a lot of colle colleagues that were not as fortunate as I am to survive this. And, you know, and, and that's one that's tough on all of us, you know, and my story is no different than any of their stories, to be honest. And, and anyone out there, we all were dealing with it. Um, and then to get out of the hospital, get back to work and, and, you know, the anxiety of the personnel, the anxiety of our medics, our EMTs, the police officers, everyone was anxious. Everyone was nervous to be out there, but everyone did the job. And that, you know, and that's that's the thing about us, uh, you know, when you're first responders and essential workers, you know, MTA didn't shut down. 
every the people that needed to be out there were out there and and they were doing their jobs and and just kudos to the whole community of first responders for for answering that call and you know sometimes we get overlooked sometimes we we get not that we don't get the credit that we should get but i think the people really saw the value of what we do um going into homes i often say you know, the hospital is the front line, you know, but we are like the special forces where we go behind the enemy lines. We go into the homes, you know, of the sick people, and we go into homes where everyone in the house is coughing to get the one person who's the sickest and take them to the hospital. But, you know, every it's not a controlled environment, and that that's not just with COVID. That's with any call that we do. It's an uncontrolled environment. You, you never know who's going to come out of the kitchen or the back room or, or whatever, and that's always – you have to have that heightened sense of awareness that we all have. And that's why I always say it, it. it's not a job that just anyone can do. And I've seen, and I think some of us, many of you out there have seen that work in this field where someone will quit their first day on the job because they just realize this is not for me. That It happens. It's not an uncommon thing. And I've seen it a couple of times. Being a patient, we all make the worst patients. Um, if you work in healthcare, you you make the worst patient, and we we know this. If you if you are a first responder or you're in emergency services, it's not easy dealing with us as patients. But it was very weird, especially because it was my peers, and my coworkers that responded to my house. Um, I think it was also weird for them to see me like that. Is if you know me as a person, if you know me personally, you know I, I, I'm not the sit-still kind of person. I'm always moving. I'm always, I'm never sitting stationary for more than a few minutes. I just have to keep moving around. But to be laid out the way I was and just unable to sit up, walk, get up on my own, to have to be carried out of my house, um, you know, on oxygen. And, and thankfully I wasn't intubated, but it would have been justified because my, I mean, my oxygen saturation was, I believe it was 82%, um, percent, which, you know, normally should be 95 to a hundred percent. So it was, it was bad. And that was always in the back of my mind that, you know, I, I don't want to be intubated. I don't want to be intubated and it didn't happen thankfully. And, and, you know, that worked out, but being on the opposite side and being brought to the hospital, you know, it's, you know, after you do your whole career taking other people, for you to be the patient is a very weird feeling. I didn't find myself being critical of the care that was being given to me because they were doing a great job. And realizing they were just as nervous as I was, you got a, a year ago, it was still unknown. There was still a lot of unknowns. A year ago, the, the policies and the procedures were changing almost by the, actually literally by the hour sometimes as to which mask you're supposed to wear. Should you wear two masks? Should you wear a surgical mask or N95 or both? Or what do you put on the patient? There was a, there were a lot of questions as to what policies and procedures to follow. And it wasn't very clear. Um, but locally we, it was being handled well, you know, in our region. So we had a good handle on that. I definitely, had a, a, a deeper respect for the staff that works on the front line after being a patient myself with COVID-19.
you know, I realized, like I said, I was downstairs in my basement for about three weeks coughing. It was it was definitely a danger zone to go down there for anybody but myself. Um, and, you know, I, I actually dragged myself out of the basement just because I didn't want them to get exposed to what was down there because I know all I've been doing is breathe, you know, barely breathing and, and, and cough, you know, coughing. So I literally crawled. And, and it's funny because one of the crew asked, he said, hey, why did you, you know, come outside? Why didn't you want us to come down to the basement? Are you, you like, were you ashamed of, you know, what we would see? I'm like, no, it's not that. I just don't didn't want you guys to be exposed to anything like that. So, yeah, it was a newfound respect because they were ready to come down there. They, they put on their, you know, the PPE and, and put on everything. And that's all you can do is follow, you know, the guidelines. And they, we were scared. The staff was scared. I had one EMT tell me I'm sleeping in my car because I don't want to have a newborn baby in the house. And we don't, I don't want to expose the child to anything out there. That that's that's a reality. People were afraid to go home. Thankfully, certain places allowed for us to, if you were able to get a hotel room and kind of offset that that fear and, and stay in the hotel. You know, they allowed first responders to stay, but not everyone had that option. Also, and then you have people that have pre-existing conditions. You know, in EMS and fire and PD, they're very nervous. You have a newborn baby at home, you're extremely nervous. But they showed up, they came to work, and they did the job. So. You have to respect that. You have to respect that. So the Lights and Sirens podcast, we, we are here to tell the story of the first responders. We are here to hear the stories of the first responders, the men and women that work on the front line, that go behind the enemy lines to, to, to get to the people that need the assistance. That's what we're here for. We're here to hear your stories. <laughs>